Any cool new shoes you're psyched on? I don't know. There's there's <laughs> so much. So right now you're seeing a lot of new innovation from the brand Nike, which I traditionally mm -hmm. don't like because they've always made kind of like crappy shoes, to be honest. But they're making some of the nicest, like most comfortable uh, footwear options right now for both racing and training. So it's kind of cool to see what they've got coming out. I've been um, testing but, the Puma Deviate for Podium Runner and they are sweet. Like if you want to run a fast race or like a good workout, that's the shoe. Hey, do you have a contact within Puma? No. I just okay. have this thing where randomly road shoes show up at my house and then I'm supposed to test them. Nice. But I could that, find a contact if you needed that one. That sounds like a dream. It's pretty sweet, except for occasionally I'll put a shoe on and I'm just like, oh God, like... Like I tried to run in like the newest Mizuno Wave Inspire, just like on my like 30 minute shuffle. And I like made it one mile and I was like, this is hell. Okay, wait, what about the ultras? You didn't even make it out of the house. No, I can't handle ultras. <laughs> I, I can't. I choose I've life. Heard, I've heard that like people that switch to ultra, they get used to that really awesomely like wide toe box and then they can't get used to anything else. So it's like, once yeah. you go ultra, you just have to understand that you're just gotta go ultra from then on. Yeah. Well, I have like ultra. super narrow long feet. So like having additional toe box just means that my feet like slide forward and jam into the front of the shoe rather than like, like, I don't need that. Like I, I have very, I don't know, like I like a narrow shoe. Um, I've been really loving the New Balance 1080s. It's like kind of a grandpa shoe, which I really, really love. Um, but they're just so great. Ultra is just like, like I put them on, like I was like really like, I'm gonna go try to do my job and like wear these shoes. Like I don't have to go far. I'm definitely not going fast. And I like put one on my foot and I was like, uh, can't do it. Aside from the Olympus this year, like I feel like they ruined all their shoes. Like I used to be a diehard ultra runner and everything is just so different and not comfortable. Aside that's from a lot the of the, that's like a lot of the feedback that we've gotten from other testers who have a more nuanced view of this footwear. Yeah. But yeah, that and like, I tried to wear some on running shoes and it just felt like I had like cinder blocks on my feet and like my feet like immediately fell asleep. And like, I do not have picky feet. Like I mean, I've got pretty normal feet, but I don't know. There's a couple, couple shoes out there. I'm just like, the hell, how do you run in this? That's how I felt. Oh, I was going to say, that's how I felt when I got the catalog for Hoka, the new shoes that they've come out. It's like, they've got this little doohickey on the back oh, end yeah. of the shoe. And I'm like, what is that? Yeah. They're making, <laughs> it's funny. Yeah, what cause is like, that? So there's two, there's like the Clifton for heel strikers, which is hilarious because like, as if anyone who's a midfoot striker was like already like that hyped on the Clifton anyway. Um, and then there's the 10-9, which is, I say this with all kindness towards my podcast sponsor, the dumbest shoe ever created. Um, it's just like an insane amount of surface area and it's just for downhill running, which is like so I actually, I wrote a review of it for Trail Runner that they were not like amped on because I just thought it was such a funny and ridiculous shoe. It's like, it's like if you, so like to go downhill, you have to go uphill and these shoes kind of suck for that, but oh, the they are down, great on the downhill. The downhill specific shoe. It's yeah, a downhill so specific weird. shoe. Although if they got into just downhilling only events, I would be like the first person to sign up I for know. that. Oh my God, my knees hurt like thinking about it. <laughs> everything hurts. It's like making, I, I think I compared it to like 
if you the only pair of skis you could own were fat skis and you loved touring just kind of is like not that great yeah if you just loved like three hour climbs yeah <laughs> if you're like i just want maximum surface area from my shoe <laughs> and like they kind and it's so funny like when they literally send you the box it comes with like a war like a piece of paper on top of the box like in the postage thing that literally says like don't wear these shoes while driving don't wear these shoes while walking up and down stairs it's so ridiculous whoa yeah that's nuts i'm like this is not a versatile like I guess I would love to get to the level of affluence where I'm like, yes, $160 is the correct amount to spend on shoes that I literally can't safely drive in. <laughs> That's a different tax bracket than I currently inhabit. Uh, yeah, I think most Americans don't yeah. inhabit that tax yeah. bracket. <laughs> if you own the 10-9, you're not getting a stimulus check. Or, yeah, or you could just spend your stimulus check on- More 10-9s. More 10-9s. <laughs> <laughs> Stimulate the downhill economy. <laughs> That's so funny. Oh my God. Yeah, where we live, it's all about the uphill economy. Mm -hmm. So that's like the funniest thing I've ever heard. Yeah. It's well, like we already have thing. a downhill economy. The right. whole economy is a downhill economy. I know, but they're trying to build the uphill economy. Yeah. Which is <laughs> the joke. So Aspen, as the climate becomes increasingly in unstable, they're investing all this money into infrastructure that's like less dependent on downhill skiing and encourages more people to ski uphill, to trail run, to mountain bike, um, and do things like that. The joke is for people that actually live in the area that the economy has always been uphill because everyone who doesn't, that can't afford to live in Aspen lives downhill from Aspen and has to commute uphill. Yeah. So... Should we get into some questions? Let's get into some questions. Oh, hold on. CT has a comment. Downhill is always a positive. <laughs> yeah, for me too. I just like relish the downhills. I'm just like, when I'm on the climb, I'm all I'm thinking about is just getting to that downhill. Yeah. Whenever I run downhill, I'm just like, oh my God. I feel like I'm just so nervous about like busting up my face or my teeth. Oh, oh God. You wear a helmet when you do I've thought about it. Like <laughs> there's occasionally times where I'm running downhill and like I think about the guys that go do like intense like enduro downhill racing and I'm like, I understand why elbow pads exist. Yeah. But you know, I've never seen you fall on a downhill. That's not true. Like literally our first ever run together up to Cathedral Lake, I broke my hand. You did? Yeah. I forgot. That. Yeah. You did? Second time we hung out out That was on the uphill. No, it was on the downhill. I didn't fall. I can't fall that hard going uphill. <laughs> <laughs> I do remember you fell. It was before that switch. I remember. Yep. Ooh, that's a technical spot. Broke my hand. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. Drew, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's get into some questions here. This is what everybody came for, not the chit chat. Um, Okay. Yeah. Well, let's just start off with a, a fun question. And I, I like this question. I think everybody asks about it um, and wants to know, is there an advantage to dictating training based on time or based on miles? Um, mm. I think that it's highly individual. Yeah. Yeah. And it super depends. It, it, and what I mean by that specifically is for ultra runners, um, sometimes time, uh, is important, right? Because your races are very long. Um, but depending on the level of athlete, 
um, it can be more beneficial to use mileage. I think mileage is a much better control. Um, but with when you're thinking about time in terms of training, um, obviously when you're training for long events, you need to accumulate a lot of time on feet to, to prepare. And you need events. to accumulate specific distances as well, right? Mm -hmm. Like just because you've done a six hour run, if you only went 15 miles, you are not ready for a 50K at that point. Like you, you have to, like, I always think about like what the long-term goal is. So like if I'm programming someone by time, it usually means I'm trying to control the volume in a really specific way. And I don't want them out there just endlessly running. Um, sorry, Bowie's in a very chewy phase. Um, she's getting very good at like identifying things that absolutely ought not to be chewed on and finding them. Like uh, my two non-moldy flasks that she was just destroying. Well, they're non-moldy. <laughs> right. And I don't want to drink out of the moldy ones. <laughs> um, so like a lot of times I'll program people by mileage if we need to hit a certain amount of mileage for a race. For other people, I'll program them by time if I don't want them like out there running for too long or mm -hmm. not long enough. Exactly. I think it's really important, especially with athletes who are, you know, training for their first few ultras, um, you know, they're building up their fitness. And when we're looking at like 20 milers and longer, uh, long runs, being able to dictate those runs in time, because we don't necessarily want an athlete out doing a 10 hour run to accomplish a 20 miler or a six or an eight hour run. You know, those efforts That's should be used very really sparingly yeah. um, because of how much concentrated stress there is on those days. Um, so, you know, in those cases, I would actually, I would ask the athlete, you know, to do a time-based run um, and maybe so therefore also when they are, you know, doing a more mountainous adventure, if it's an athlete that's, you know, not as accustomed to running on steeper, more technical terrain, that's going to add a lot of time. So say you're trying to accomplish 16 or 18 or 20 miles in terrain like that. Um, coffee, sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah, it can just take a much longer time and we really don't want necessarily the athlete to be out there for that long i'd actually rather the athlete build up the time on feet over an extended training block rather than just a few concentrated runs that's a lot riskier um for injury but you know i i prefer to to train my athletes through miles i think for me i feel better about that um just because that's kind of my coaching preference mm. um I it's think easier my, to control. I train like half and very, half. Right. I know you have a slightly different approach, which is, which is really cool. Well, it just depends mm -hmm. on the athlete. Like, mm -hmm. or for busy athletes, like it's, I'll have a lot of newer athletes trained by time mm -hmm. because like, if you're, you know, if you're running miles at a certain pace, like I don't need you to like spend most of your day running three miles. It's just more beneficial to spend less time doing more quality miles than like out there running very yeah. slowly for a very long time. And that's just like not very pleasant or fun training either. Um, or for like really busy people, you know, mm -hmm. like it feels sometimes a lot more um, accomplishable to do a 50 minute run as opposed to a five mile run. Yeah, for busier athletes, especially when you're kind of like thinking about penciling in your runs into your schedule, like you do meetings and things like that, knowing exactly how long you need to be out there yeah. is really beneficial. So I think the time-based training works 
great under those circumstances. Or I'll do it for people who need to learn to slow down because a lot of times, sometimes you'll tell an athlete to run five miles and they're like, excellent, five mile time trial every day. Mm -hmm. uh, then I'll tell them to run for 50 minutes and they'll learn that the goal is not to race five miles, it is to spend 50 minutes running slowly. Yeah. And that can help people embrace um, easier efforts. Yeah, I would agree. Drew, what, what's your perspective uh, with kind of more road running, marathoning? No, that makes sense. So like you, TJ, I'm more of a, a miles based person, both like personally uh, with my own training, but then with my athletes uh, training for marathon below uh, mileage to me, is just the way to go. Uh, referencing what Zoe said with having a little bit more control over, um, I guess, the, the plan uh, where if someone's running slow one day, that could be 10 minute pace, or if they're running fast one day, that could be seven minute pace. And so the variance of mileage can uh, be greatly altered depending on pace really. Um, so uh, miles, again, definitely the way to go, I think for marathon or below, um, but not to, not to take away from what Zoe said with uh, busier athletes or just not having that time. I find myself from uh, uh, sometimes when my little girl, Brady, who's almost two years old, is just not happy in the morning. I have she starts cutting into my run time, which is fine. So I go out between, you know, dropping her off at school and then having to go to like work, work. Um, I'll say, okay, well, I've got, I've got 30 minutes. Like, what can I do in 30 minutes? It, it doesn't even matter. Let's just do 30 minutes instead of like, man, I don't know if I've got time to run five miles today and then trying to like bust ass, trying to get it done. So, um, but, but regardless, marathoning and, and below, definitely, I think mileage is the way to go. Yeah, I find, I mean, and, you know, again, like it totally depends on the individual, the individual athlete goals, goals but I find at. some of the advantages of time-based training are sometimes one mile can feel scary, but 10 minutes rarely feels as scary because that takes a lot of pressure off in some ways. Um, so if you're feeling, if you ever feel pressured by training, you can talk with your coach about maybe mixing in some more time-based training. Um, again, given provided that you don't need to really hit some specific mileage related volume for a specific race, but mm -hmm. it just like depends on, it depends on a lot of things and there's no right or wrong way for some athletes. I've given them time-based training blocks in the context of mileage-based training overall. So it just, it kind of fluctuates depending on what's going on yeah. in your life as well. Oh yeah. And I think sometimes for athletes who are too accustomed, so like there's huge advantages to doing a lot of your runs on flat, easy surfaces, because when you remove all the variables of the trail, you're able to really hone in on the biomechanical side of running, which is great for neuromuscular adaptation. But when those athletes get used to running, you know, their eight mile run in an hour and seven minutes, and they're, I guess I'll speak for myself. And they're like, <laughs> you just start to really understand how long you're out there at easy effort doing your runs. And then you try to transition over to the trails, adding in that additional time can be very difficult mentally, because even if you're out there for 20, 30 extra minutes, because of all the climbing and the technicality of the trails that can be really tough so sometimes you know with athletes who are very accustomed to running on the road they like flat surfaces but they have trail racing ambitions um you know i will i'll switch things over to to time-based or i will add cues on the um on the train in the training log like run this over hilly terrain run this on trails 
uh, with the purpose of knowing that that ups your time on feet and will kind of get you out of that, like clicking the miles, just one mile after another, ticking them off um, to get out of that mindset and to be a little bit more patient. Because when you make that transition, um, especially now, I mean, in, in Colorado and in other parts of the West, we're starting to see some semblance of spring out there and, and like low down, you might be able to get on some trails, especially if you live in the front range. Um, you know, thinking about transitioning over, you're going to be adding a lot of time onto your feet when you make it back onto the trails. Um, so just kind of being more patient and making that gradual transition. I, and I also, I really like, I like mileage goals sometimes for me. And that's kind of something that I, I constantly work through. Kylie but, trains entirely on time. Yeah. She's a freaking beast. I know. I mean, it can work really well for people. Yeah. Um, but for me and my schedule, I like knocking out that 20 miler. I like knocking out that 50, 15 miler. I know how that works for me in the context of my own training and my goals. Um, so sometimes I'm very comfortable training athletes in that way. Um, cause I have a strong familiarity with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think another thing is that typically we really don't want athletes doing easy, like Tuesday, Thursday runs that exceed an hour and a half. That to me becomes entirely too much volume. Even if like they're only doing six or eight miles, they're become like glycogen issues. Like if you're, if, if you're essentially making normal weekday runs become, well, I would, I classify anything that takes Over longer 90 than minutes, 90, 90 minutes, minutes as a long run. Mm -hmm. So for athletes who, you know, their pace is such that a six to eight mile run, uh, might exceed an hour and a half. That's when I'll put a time limit on it and be like, let's really try to keep this an hour and 20 and below. Yeah. Um, I think that's a good segue, Zoe, into our second question. I'm actually going to shoot this right to Drew first, because I feel like we always answer first, and then Drew has to, like, come in and, like, you know, <laughs> like, think of something novel to say, but he is the perfect person to answer this, and then we'll play, we'll play backup. Um, I've heard other runners use the term garbage miles, and I've had other runners give me advice like you should spend time cross training or lifting weights instead of running garbage miles. Do you know what people mean when they use this term? What would actually be classified as a garbage miles run? I feel like all the runs I do are purposeful and helpful, especially now since I have a coach. No, that's a really, really good question. That's a question that, I mean, all of us coaches, I'm sure have gotten at one time or another and will continue to get. So garbage miles when people refer to garbage miles those are miles that um that that you might incorporate into your weekly training plan just to achieve maybe a certain like total number of miles at the end of the week where if i want to run 70 miles a week and then i find out like after six days i'm at 65 miles and the seventh day is supposed to be my rest day i'll be like well I need another five miles. So I'll just go slog through this last five miles. And, and those would be termed garbage miles. They're, they have no purpose. They aren't helpful, quote unquote, but, but that's what it is. Um, my personal opinion on garbage miles um, is that I really don't like the term. Um, I, I don't think that garbage miles, like that, that kind of thing shouldn't exist. It's kind of like fake news, like news is real. Like it can't be fake, but like, I can't, alternative miles exactly i can't get down with the garbage miles term um everything your coaches have you do is with purpose like we spend so much time planning and preparing your schedules 
um, more time than we'd probably care to admit to make sure that everything has a plan and a purpose for our long-term success and long-term goals. There, there is no such thing for any of y'all as like garbage miles. Um, but that's, that's my opinion. I don't know if that's helpful or not. <laughs> that was very helpful. Yeah. I think if you feel like you're slipping into miles that feel like garbage miles, you, need uh, to you should, yeah, you should rest. You should not cross train instead. This is the, pro like, if you feel tired to the point where your mileage feels unproductive, the worst thing you can do is say, well, great, I'm going to go hard on the assault bike or go lift a bunch of heavy weights to feel good about myself in the garage. What you need to do is to rest. I would say the only garbage miles are miles where your effort doesn't match the output. Like those days where like maybe your effort's really, really high and that feels really bad and you're like you can't run easy enough because that can indicate there's some like issues going on and so running in that state I would say is counterproductive and that to me would be a garbage mile but that doesn't that just indicates that you really need to rest and that you need to take a step like some calculated steps back in training definitely don't cross train instead of running garbage miles because then you're just doing garbage cross training or doing garbage weightlifting. you need to rest like for training to be productive it needs to feel pretty good most of the time um, and so if you're ever running miles that feel additionally laborious, do not punish yourself with cross training or weightlifting, uh, reward yourself with rest and respect how you feel. Um, and yeah, just make sure there's purpose behind all your miles. And if they ever start to feel like they're undermining the intent of your training, rest is always a good option. Rest is always productive in the context of training. Yeah, I would agree. Kristen, did you want to add to this one? Oh, I'm on mute. <laughs> um, yeah, I think, man, I agree with everything that Drew says, you know, all the time, but especially this time. <laughs> I think I, a lot of the time I refer to them as junk miles, um, which is the same. And it's, it's definitely one of those things where if you catch yourself feeling unmotivated or feeling like running is a chore, like it's something you have to do versus something you get to do. It's time to reevaluate what you're doing, you know, and it's, it's time to take a, like a surprise rest day, I think is one of the best ways to sort of get back on the right track. So yeah, if you ever feel like you're running junk miles, surprise rest day, which is, you know, everyone loves those. So yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think, you know, I want to couch that in the context of if you're an athlete that typically feels very motivated and you have a day where you're struggling with motivation, it's really worth listening to that. However, if you're one of those athletes where you only ran on the days you felt motivated, you would run approximately three days a year, then you need to rely on something other than motivation to get you out the door. And we've written about this a lot. And there's like generally a couple different types of athletes, like the person who never needs motivation feels great, like most of the time. And then occasionally you have that voice that's like running really, I'm not excited about it today. Something, you know, this is something TJ and I talk about a lot is like, man, I'm really not feeling motivated to do my double or do my cross training. Um, I should really listen to that and make sure I'm not pushing. On the other hand, for, you know, people that are newer to training and struggle with consistency, you need to uh, learn to not rely on that voice to get you out the door. You need to, you know, not wait not wait to feel good to get going, but get going and hope you feel good later. Yeah, great. I think you guys totally covered it. Um, you know, I guess my all my similar perspective, but through a slightly different lens is athletes who are working through an injury. 
Um, sometimes you are uh, pressing up against the point where the runs become unproductive because that thing that's nagging you is starting to bother you again. That's the point in which you need to stop your run and walk home. Um, I would consider those to be junk or garbage miles as well, um, where you're running and you feel good. And then all of a sudden that thing is starting to bother you again. Um, that's the point where you should just call it. I don't like athletes to, you know, struggle through those last couple miles because they feel like beholden to trying to get to that upper end of their mileage or the upper end of their, you know, time prescribed volume for a run when they're coming back from injury your runs have to be productive. You should feel good on the majority of your runs. If you get to that point where you're tired, you're slogging, you know, you can call it a day. If you, yeah. the minimum prescribed volume for an athlete is completely acceptable always. Um, you know, there are sometimes points where it may not be enough and your coach will cue you in on that. But for the majority of the time, you know, running to the point where you feel like you've given it a quality effort and then going home to rest productively, um, you know, I think is important. And by productive rest, I mean resting while doing non-productive things like complete rest. Uh, anyways, maybe we should move on to our, our third question, which is a little bit about rest. Yeah, kind of. Kind <laughs> of. Uh, this is a question that's very interesting. Do micro sleep breaks during long ultras help to avoid hallucinations? Is there an advantage to taking a sleep break out there? So I looked into this and there is no research on it. Um, I would say it's highly specific on the individual. I also think we need to define terms. I feel that long ultra is a very loose term. Yes, extremely uh, loose. I would say <laughs> that if do not sleep during a 100, no matter how much you want to. Like hallucinations, not great, but it's fine. Like every, you know, it's very normal. I would say that I would not sleep in order to prevent hallucinations. I would just try to be done with that event. Like I would rather you spend 20 minutes trying to get closer to the finish line than like, I'll take a nap and see if it goes away. Cause like, if it doesn't go away, then you just wasted 20 minutes and you're still hallucinating and you're still not at the finish line. And, and that's then, not yeah, an excellent you're outcome. Pushing cutoffs and you're stuff pushing like cutoffs. Um, I would say that if you're if you're regularly experiencing hallucinations during events, we need to have a talk about your goals and your mental health and why it's, you know, it's like, I've, I've definitely experienced hallucinations during longer events. Um, but like at no point did I want to sleep in order to like hold those off. Yeah. Possibly, you know, if you're running a 200 miler, some concentrated uh, sleep breaks, could be beneficial because you're, we're talking about multi-day events. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, sleeping for maybe a, a handful of hours could help just with some general recovery while you're out there. Um, and, and like sleep deprivation obviously has a lot of side effects, right? Like these hallucinations happen uh, as a result of just not feeling refreshed, not feeling recovered, feel, uh, hormonal disbalance, and all the things that are associated with poor sleep. Uh, but, you know, getting that little bit of a break, it can really help to reset your system. I know, you know, athletes have It's not going to be, a, it's going to be a very gentle reset though. Like there's still yeah, a physiological a crap storm occurring of, in your body. Of course. And I think that that's, you know, understood. 
Right. It has to be. We're yeah. talking about 200 mile effort. Sure, sure, sure. We shouldn't have disillusions when we're talking about, you know, hundreds and 200 right. mile efforts. I, just, I don't want people viewing napping as like a go-to approach. Yeah, I, I actually think the nap is a really poor choice yeah. in a hundred miler. Um, if you feel that you need to nap, yeah. you need to reevaluate how you- Any uh, substantial breaks is just going to make it much more difficult for you to want to continue the event. So the longer you wait at your a muscles station, are gonna, like bad things are going to happen. You get stiff, you get, cold. you get demotivated, you get cold. It's hard to warm back up. I think it's pretty rare. There's always going to be exceptions, right? Like Courtney has napped. Jim Walmsley took like a five hour, hour nap during UTMB that one time and still came in top 10 because he's Jim Walmsley. Um, we don't, Jim Walmsley's not on our team. And so the approach that we recommend is different than that. And you should not, you should never look at outliers and how they run their races and think, yes, I am going to do that. Oh man, that is such a good point. Don't take into account Courtney DeWalter's tactics, Jim Walmsley's tactics, Killian Journey's tactics. We believe in you and you are all incredible athletes, but you are also not Killian. You are not Jim Walmsley and you are not Courtney. And we are going to race and train accordingly. Yeah, I agree. I think the, the nap can have some pitfalls that we want to avoid. Um, and Pete says, what if you are at the point of sleepwalking and following your pacer like a zombie? I would say you're just describing the final stages of an ultra and you need to put your big runner pants on and you need to keep walking. Yeah, I, man, I've, I've never run an ultra like 100 miler, um, but I've been, I've been there in ski mountaineering in long days, having that like that head nod, you know, or just following the boot pack. And it's, it's tough. Do anything You've else besides napping would be my advice. Through that because as soon as you stop and sleep, the chances, aren't gonna improve. Yeah, the chances of finishing are exponentially smaller. I would say have some caffeine. Um, I would say, you know, have your pacer engage with you and talk to you. Um, you know, make sure that you're, you're fueling really well and getting some good carbohydrates in maybe something with a lot of maltodextrin. So you can get like that sugar high right away. You've got to, to kind of fight that urge. Oh yeah. Lionel says he had a friend do the tour. So there's this crazy race called Tour de Géant. It is so bananas. Um, that's a race that people nap during, but it also takes like, like mid packers finish in like a week. And yeah. that's just like a different ball game. Um, and like, we're trying to give advice that's like more applicable to people doing 100s rather than like trying to circumnavigate the whole Alps. Um, though should <laughs> or you run choose... a 200 mile race, yeah. which we've probably we have had several people, three or four athletes do that. I'm training a couple people for 200s, but you know, uh, avoid napping if possible. Um, cause like that basically takes one existential crisis and can turn it into like five. Yeah, I would agree. Okay. But also there's no research on this. So, <laughs> so that's mostly conjecture. Yeah. Oh man. I've had athletes kind of try various different training mechanisms to work through like those evening hours you know like doing a training run overnight where they like worked all day and then they went out that night and did you know their long run through the evening and i think that that sort of starts to push the junk miles yeah um a little bit and can be a bit risky you know i don't really necessarily want athletes to be training uh under circumstances of poor sleep you know, there's so many different ways of doing this. I've had athletes go and do, you know, a 15 mile run 
in the evening and then take like two or three hours nap. And then in the early morning hours, do another 15 miler. Um, and I really haven't seen any performance like race day performance uh, benefit to that. Like We've never had an athlete be like, I'm so glad I did that long run when I was tired AF. Yeah. Cause that really made the difference. Those athletes still end up going out on the race and, and really just having trouble working through the tiredness and the evening hours. And I think that that's just an inevitable part of the race experience. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, you guys could correct me if I'm wrong, or if you've experienced something else, I'd love to hear about it. But, um, in my, in my coaching experience, I haven't seen any, any real benefit to that yet. I would, and you know, because so much of our methodology relies on running economy and making running feel easier, practicing crappy running is not the linchpin of our running success. Um, so that's like why we don't recommend like training with weight vests, running at night. Like I would say if you want to run in the dark a couple times on trail on race, similar terrain to boost your confidence, that can be fine. But you definitely like, I don't recommend people like wake up at 1am and do a run. Like no matter what, 1 a.m. during a 100 mile is going to be hard and there is like nothing on earth you can make it do to make it not hard. If you need to like build your confidence by doing some running in the dark and like working with your gear and using a headlamp, that's one thing. Yeah, that's but definitely we, critical. I would say that missing sleep and running when you're tired, the negative, like the, the risk benefit analysis is not great there. Like you're so much more likely to get injured, to have unproductive training, um, do all these things. And you're so less likely to come to your coach the day after your 100 be like, yeah, that one run I did at 1 a.m. totally made the difference. Um, <laughs> you know, I think that's, that's where we kind of are on those things. Yeah. Uh, Chelsea says that hallucinations are more of an issue when you haven't fueled properly. That can definitely be a contributor yeah, can for be a sure. Contributor. Absolutely. Might cool. as well hedge your bets, hedge your bets and eat a lot. Let's move on to this question here. How do I go about writing a realistic race plan? What questions should I ask myself? Um, yeah. Okay. Let's just leave it there. Cause yeah. there's kind of a lot of other, I would love to hear you start with this one. Cause I feel like you're really helpful when I write my, uh, yeah, plans. I think depending on the race and the distance, you know, uh, the, the way to, to, to look at this is through the lens of uh, long run experience. Um, you know, how fast were you running your, your long runs and taking that information and applying it to the race. Now that's specifically through an ultra running kind of lens. So, you know, 50 K and above, right? If we're talking about marathon running, you've got a marathon pace goal, you know how fast you have to run each split. And it's very cut and dry. Um, but easy. When, yeah, easy it's very easy planning. You run the pace that you've been training to run. Um, but when you're running an ultra and there's a lot of climbing and things like that, and you have um, to like coordinate with a crew and you have to factor in yeah. aid stations and environmental conditions and night. And like when you might want your headlamp, when you might want to not carry a headlamp. Yeah. I it think it's complicated. It, it does. And I think it's important again, like I primarily for myself and for athletes, I tell them to, to cue into their long run efforts, ideally in like the eight to 12 weeks before your event, you're kind of doing your long runs over terrain that's similar to your race. If you're doing your, your due diligence as an athlete, 
you're doing that because it's important to be prepared for you know your race specifics. Um, so that will give you a good indication, you know, like, and you can look on Strava and you can see how quickly you move through specific segments and that'll give you an idea of how fast, you know, time wise. I also look at past race experiences too, mm -hmm. um, to see, you know, how quickly I was moving over, you know, X type of terrain with this kind of climbing and I get very general, uh, kind of windows. Mm -hmm. of time yeah and I have like my if I'm racing well time and then where if I'm racing okay time and then if I'm having like kind of if I'm in a bit of trouble having a tough day kind of time and so I'll have that range um and I think when you're working with and coordinating a crew it's really important to have that range and then to add some extra time on either side of that and be like, you never, you know, you never know what can happen out there. So there's going to be the, these like windows of, of like when I need you to be at point A. And the worst thing is when you tell somebody, you know, that the window is this and you arrive before it, and mm -hmm. then you don't have crew support or you, you know, you arrive late and uh, they've already gone or something. So give oh yourself, very, get a better crew, give yourself very, make sure generous. they know that like, if you have a vision quest kind of day that you still need help. Support. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so I would recommend very general uh, kind of times to coordinate with your crew and uh, to not get bogged down by the specifics. How realistic mm -hmm. does it need to be? Not that realistic. It needs to be ballpark. It needs to be real flexible. Yeah, we're talking about ultra running where there are a lot of unforeseen challenges that are gonna occur out there. Perhaps as the race goes on, you should account for some fatigue. And so it might take a little bit more time to go the distances you're going before, you know, keeping that into account uh, trying to adjust those expectations of yourself and always making sure that when you're like building out your plan for your crew or for yourself, for your fueling, et cetera. And when you think you're going to need to get like that fueling refresh at an aid station, whatever it is, uh, that you give yourself a buffer. Don't, you know, a lot of us like to, at least me, I like to run light in races. I don't bring nearly as much stuff as I should. And it always comes back to get me <laughs> pack a little extra, have that emergency gel in there. You don't have an emergency blanket. I always take an emergency <laughs> blanket now. Like I've like fully taken it on like 15 mile trail runs, like just in car hey. I'm like, I'm not doing that shit again. Like, yeah. Actually, we ran the Canyon this weekend and I brought an emergency blanket with me for the 16 miles, you know, just, just in case. <laughs> That way you have it. like you never know. Yeah. I mean, like I wouldn't, you know, I'm not I can be a bit of an overpacker and I definitely like on my trail runs, you'd be like, well, maybe I'll bring a little puffy. And like that's a bit overkill. Like bring a shell, maybe bring gloves, um, bring extra food for sure. Cause like, especially like even if you're not like totally on board living that gel life you know what, if it like worse comes to worse and like all you have is like a salted watermelon gel, that's like gonna be so much better than if you're bonking, you're on the middle of nowhere, like just always bring extra food. It's like, don't be like, oh, I saved eight grams. Uh, bring extra food, just do it. Uh, that always backfires on me because, you know, I think it's important actually, you know, if you want in, in making a specific plan too, you've got to account for the fact that the latter stages of the race, it's often much hotter 
So you need that, like, at least me, I need like a third flask to get through that and not be dehydrated. I need an extra gel because it's hot and I have slowed down when it's hot. Mm -hmm. And I always forget to do, to like, to note that. And like, every time that I go and do a race, I'm like, I'll be fine. I will drink more at an aid station and I'll be too wrapped up in competing and trying to perform to my best that I'll forget about like have drinking down an extra flask before I leave the aid station. And it's gotten worse in times of COVID because the aid stations are crowded and everyone's taking their time. It's like something and, out of the walking dead. People yeah, are like, they're just up. like chilling. Yeah. Like, and you're like, well, I'm trying to race here. And I also don't want to touch anyone. Yeah. So I think again, like don't get wrapped up too much in the specifics, be prepared. Know you're going to slow down the late, like in the later stages of the race, either due to fatigue or environmental. Don't uh, ask your coach to do this for you. We've said it a million times and I get asked like at least once every week for someone for like, for me to do their race plan. Um, that's not, it's not our job. And we can't like, it's not because we don't want to. Uh, I love bossing people around. Like this is why I do this job. I would love to tell you what to do. I just know that I cannot accurately do that. Um, Cause like, if we tell you some one thing and like, maybe you end up feeling like you can go faster than like we sold you short and we've like limited your progress. Or if we tell you to do one thing and you're not able to achieve that pace, then you're going to feel terrible about yourself and you're going to run even slower. And it's going to be a moment of psychological breakdown. Um, and so like, we just, we aren't going to do that for you. Um, we do have on our website, a blog post about formulating a race plan. And I have a link to an Excel spreadsheet that I used for when I like for my 100 K planning. Um, that's just like a base. If you are looking for like specifically like how to just plan things out. Yeah, totally. Um, Drew, I don't know if you want to chime in a little bit from the marathoning perspective on this. Like as it pertains to, um, a realistic marathon plan or road running plan. Oh yeah. Sorry. We kind of segued there and I was like, what were we talking about originally? <laughs> we do that. <laughs> the, uh, marathon planning kind of like you said tj it's really really basic the whole time you're training for a marathon you're training for a very specific pace the only time you would deviate from that pace that you're planning on running is if you're running a course that has a significant like number of elevation gain or loss um obviously if if uh, there's a marathon say like boston marathon you know that miles like 19 through 20 three, you're going to have like three, four climbs in it. You know, you're going to be tired. I know a lot of times people, myself included, will try to bank maybe like three to four seconds per mile up front so that you understand that you're going to slow down maybe 15, 20 seconds a mile, those, uh, those three miles or whatever towards the end of the race. Um, but you get in trouble whenever you start to deviate from your original plan. You're like, man, I'm on mile eight and I feel great. I'm going to drop it down 15, 20 seconds a mile. It's like everyone feels great at mile eight of a frigging marathon. Everyone does. That's not when the race starts. The race starts at the end. And to set yourself up for success at the end of a race, really, regardless of the distance, you have to, you know, be smart at the beginning. You have to stick to your plan. Yeah. I think adding, adding to that, I know that um, having run and chatted with Claire Gallagher a couple of times like she is always so animated about how regardless of what distance you're running it's basically a fueling contest like who can fuel the best and then you know the last section of the race whether it's 
for the marathon, you know, you're not going to start racing at mile eight unless might be different because it's a marathon, but you know, you're not going to start racing at mile eight of a hundred miler. Um, and so like for Claire, you know, she was like, it's basically a food eating contest until the last fifth of the race, you know, so you race the last 20 miles or you race. I the say last it's a 50 K with a 70 mile warm up. Exactly. Exactly. And so I think that, um, I think that fueling is man, you know, and I think, I think TJ's mentioned this before where it's like, the people, the racers who fuel well within the first three hours of a longer ultra usually end up doing better than a lot of the others. And doing better is subjective because, you know, like you feel better than the other people and you don't, you don't bonk, you don't DNF, you don't, you know, and I think it's just so important to, to fuel well. And practicing feeling. And it, I think for me, it was one of the, the more, more difficult aspects of getting into ultra running was really nailing the fueling. Um, but once you kind of get used to eating while running and breathing at the same time, like it's hard, but you got to do it, you know, yeah. start yeah. with a walking and chewing gum and then scale up from there. Yeah. yeah. That's so vital. I think that perspective, Kristen is, is so important, you know, writing your race specific plan and making sure it's realistic just has to include plenty of of you know specifics about you know food when you're eating what it is continuing to refine your plan over time based on past experiences i think a lot of athletes overlook uh, electrolyte balance they get really wrapped up in like being able to eat a ton of different foods and then they end up still having a tough day because they they missed out on sodium intake and didn't realize it was going to be hot and things like that. Um, so yeah, I, I know we've talked about this stuff uh, previously, so I don't want to spend too much time with it and move in. I want to move on to another question, but yeah, I think that that um, you can't write a race specific plan um, that doesn't include your nutrition as well. So yeah, thanks, Kristen. That's awesome. All right, number number five, probably our last question of the day. What do you coaches do to process your own training? Do you have a post-run routine that helps you take away what you need to while leaving the stuff you don't need behind? How do you move on from a bad run? Let's start with Drew on this. He had some really good insights. Yeah, no, this is a really, really good question because it's literally something that all of us are going to use every day that we run or don't run. Um, the idea, uh, well, the question specifically asked about what we do as coaches to process training. Um, I like to give myself a little bit of uh, time after each run to stretch and foam roll and do my plyometrics and all that kind of stuff. And during that time, that's when I've uploaded my run to Strava because, you know, Strava is king. Um, it's the time that I use to think about like, like, look at the metrics, look at my pace, distance, uh, elevation, gain, heart rate, look at everything that I'm interested in and, and take that, you know, 10 minutes to like, think about it. And then it's over. And then immediately after I'm done, um, with my stretching session or whatever, and I jump in the car to head back to wherever uh, the run is over. I try not to think about it anymore, whether it's good or bad. Um, and, and just kind of prepare my body for the next run. Like, I think a lot of people get caught up on when they go for a run, say they have a, a bad run. They're like, well, now I have to recover from this bad run. It's going to take me so long to recover. I would challenge everyone to kind of diminish that thinking and think more of 
not, you're not recovering from a run, you're preparing your body for the next run. Um, it's just a little bit more positive way of looking at it. And, and that's kind of always helped me um, with bad runs specifically. Um, I can't encourage y'all enough to just, it doesn't matter. What's in the past is in the past. It doesn't mean you're gonna have to change the next run. It's just you, you as best as you can compartmentalize throw it out the door and just never think about it again because tomorrow's a new day and get yourself ready for that new day. Yeah, that compartmentalization is absolutely critical. Um, and I think that comes with a lot of experience and time uh, doing these things, but it's something that every athlete can obtain. Kristen, did you have a perspective on this? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with everything Drew said. I think the, the sooner you can let it go, the better. And I think this kind of ties back into a lot of the conversations that we've had previously, where it's like running is not the only thing in your life. You are not just a runner. And how you identify is really important because if you have a bad run or a bad race, like that could just shatter your identity, right? So I think it's important to keep things in perspective. And bad runs happen to everyone, you know? Yeah, it's that perspective is is fundamental. Um, and I, I like to, you know, for for my athletes is I try to have athletes try to externalize maybe some of the frustration or disappointment from a bad run. But over time, I like them to segue away from that um, to a, a place where they're better able to just let it go and not need to externalize as much because they're not putting as much assigned value on that individual run. Um, and I feel like that's a place where I'm at with my uh, individual training is, is that I, I no longer look at each run through the lens of this has the utmost importance and needs to be on a pedestal. Um, so if I don't execute my intervals as well as I could, or I don't feel as great as I had hoped, um, you know, I don't feel the need to externalize that anymore because it doesn't bother me. And that is the product of mindfulness training. That's the product of a lot of hard work and time and experience. But being able to let that go um, is really important. Being able to keep, you know, healthy boundaries in, around your running, the way you compartmentalize things and you identify with your training. Like whether you had a good run or a bad run, um, that is very subjective. In my mind, there are no bad runs. Every run that you do, you stack a brick in your wall, you are building your foundation, you're moving towards your goals. Um, even if the run didn't feel great, you still ran, you were consistent. Um, you know, all of that over time accumulates to, you know, successes as a runner, whether those successes are, you know, better training gains, more fitness, uh, finishing a, a race that you were really stoked on. Um, you know, every run really works to your advantage, whether or not it feels the best. And I think it's important not to try to compare one run or one workout to another. Um, you know, a lot happens during the day. A lot can contribute. There are many variables that can contribute to how good your runs feel. Was I caffeinated? Was I not? Did I sleep well? Did I not sleep well? Did I just have a argument with a partner? Did I have work stress? You know, like, did I eat enough today? When was, when did I have my last fuel before this effort? You know, did I have a workout yesterday? 
Like, was yesterday my rest day? Like, there are so many variables to, that you have to almost sometimes just give up the need to control all of that, go out and do your run, let kind of the chips fall as they may, so to speak, say, I stacked my bricks, and then you move on. Um, you know, I think it's good to have a little bit of a decompressing routine, kind of in the way that Drew described, where, you know, you go home, you do a little bit of your strength work, your phone rolling, you're waiting for that Strava to upload. You've kind of like worked through the run a little bit in your mind. If there were some takeaways, you take them with you for the next run to be applied to make the next run better. The things that you can't, you know, that won't contribute to a better run the next time, like negative self-talk, any kind of thoughts that are, that are negative, right? Not positive. Uh, we'll leave those behind. We'll write in our training log. You know, I'll go in, I'll tell my coach how, how it happened, how it went. Um, and then, you know, I'm ready for the next day. And I, I really like the reframing, um, you know, where it's not like I'm not recovering from a run. I I'm preparing for the next one. That's yeah. so awesome. Yeah. I think about Ted Lasso quoting Walt Whitman and saying, be curious, not judgmental. If you had a bad day, maybe ask questions like, was I, did I have enough sleep? How was my recovery? How was my fueling? Um, not like, oh, I had a bad run, ergo, I'm a bad runner and I'm going to engage in some really negative self-talk and spiral. Um, no one has ever negative self-talked their way to greatness. Whenever you ask people who've like done amazing things, like how did you achieve this? They're never like, yeah, I was really hard on myself uh, mm. and I punished myself and David I Hodges. talked down to myself. <laughs> and if they say that, then you're dumb. Um, David Goggins. Uh, he's like the only person I feel like that's his thing. Is David like, Goggins call he, like, out negative self talk to his way into a bunch of audiobook deals. Oh, or I hope he doesn't listen to our podcast. Yeah, yeah, David Goggins is calling David you out. Goggins. If you're one of the 40 people that regularly streams, whoa, our 75 subscribers right now on YouTube. We're crushing. <laughs> we it. have dozens of subscribers. <laughs> oh my god. Um, so occasionally funny. we'll get people who like aren't on the team that listen, and I'm like. How do you have any context for this? Like, we don't even introduce ourselves. What these people are literally doing is listening to a podcast where four people talk to each other and at no point introduce themselves. That is amazing to me. I think about that all the time. Anyway, be curious, not judgmental. Um, and like, it's just one data point. And the longer you train, the more you're like, oh, like getting anywhere is just like, it's like the scatter point and like, some days are great and some days are bad, but they're going to trend upwards over time. If you're just brave enough to, you know, start stacking those bricks, start collecting those grains of sand. Yeah. Some grains you, of sand are going to suck and some are going to be awesome, but they all go into the castle. Right. Like this week for, for our runs, they were like, not very great. They didn't, yeah. we, every day we're like, oh, these runs, <laughs> I feel like we're, I'm on the training plateau right now. Like nothing's feeling good. Maybe I'm not recovering well. What's the deal? The last and then time yesterday, saw... you finally had a great, and you know, like yeah. we both had like the last half of our runs yesterday. We're like, oh yeah, yeah. finally found that like stride, you know. Or like, like I had a terrible workout, week. but then I did a double and the double felt great. Yeah. And like, you know, I think, and I was kind of on the fence about the double because I never want to do a second run if it's going to feel counterproductive for my training. But I was like, what the heck? Like if I do 10 minutes and it feels as bad or worse as my workout that I'm just going to walk at home, mm -hmm. but it felt really great. And so it was really productive. Um, you know, so you don't want to force it, but you also want to like give each run the opportunity to be its own thing. Yeah. And if you, if you're still thinking about like that workout that didn't feel good, you're, 
chances of that next run feeling good are diminished exponentially. Like you really need to be in the present moment during these runs. I would recommend that everybody starts a mindfulness and meditation routine. I think it is vital for athletes to train yourselves mentally, be able to work on things like letting go. Uh, it'll also bleed into other areas of your life where there are challenges, um, helps you to compartmentalize so you can focus on the task at hand and all of these other things. Um, I don't, I'll go on and on about it. Cause I think yeah. it's so important. Um, I think about it a lot, like in terms of my own writing too, like mm -hmm. sometimes I'm going to write something awesome. And sometimes I'm going to write something that just like totally sucks. But what's super important is that I just keep writing and developing that body of work and hoping that it trends upwards over time, but it's only going to trend upward. If you're like brave enough to give yourself the opportunity to write something that sucks. Right. You know, even, even after maybe having a few days that didn't feel that good too. And yeah. just having the courage and the self-belief to say, you know, I'm not seeing the results right now, but I know that this work is going to lead me where I want to go. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah, that self-belief, I think is just a cornerstone of this process and something that, you know, we should all be continuing to try to yeah. build, you know, and to quote so Ted Lasso again, because we have a three Ted Lasso quote quota per episode now, uh, be a goldfish. Be a goldfish. Be a goldfish. I love that. Yeah. And what does that mean? Just you have a 10 second memory span. That's <laughs> the best. 10 seconds after your run is done, you're like, all right, on to the next thing. Yeah. What did I do 10 seconds yeah. ago? I it's already like, forgot. <laughs> I want to be like Bowie because she'll just like do something awful. Destroy the house. <laughs> she'll she destroy the house. And then by the time we're like, Bowie, she's like, <laughs> did tail. I do something awesome? <laughs> That's how I want to be. I want to be able to like go out, have a terrible run. And then 10 seconds later, be like, do I get a treat now? <laughs> it was like a good girl. All right, guys. Uh, I hope everybody has a great weekend. Thanks for tuning in. Um, we have a winter storm warning here in the Picton County area. It should be a really fun, interesting weekend, guys. Go run Can't on some tire tracks. Yeah, we have snow in Sedona too. I'm so if you're in a warmer place, have fun. Yeah. Be safe. Oh, yeah. And for like, you know, they're just like a, a word on winter training. If it snows eight feet, no pressure to run, by the way. Like cross train, bike, nap. Uh, Rest, you know, like Netflix, for some people, watch obviously, all of Ted Lasso. Yeah, watch all of Ted Lasso. That is actually what you have to do. It will, it takes like the same, it's not that, it's like 10, 30 minute episodes. It's a, it's a long run. I'm pretty sure the first time we watched it, we knocked it all out on a Saturday. Yeah, heck yeah. That yeah. shows the best. <laughs> all right, guys, take care. Have a great weekend. Stay warm. Bye. Woo. Thanks for tuning in.